I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Our text for today is found in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3 through 11. And as you turn, I wonder if you have ever said to yourself, I wish I could know what he was thinking in that moment. This past week, the House of the United States of Representatives uh, took five days and 15 separate votes to elect a speaker of the House. And with the initiation of every vote, candidates were nominated and speeches were given about their qualities, many of which were inflated. And periodically, one politician and then another would stand up and they would pop off with a verbal temper tantrum as they were casting their vote. And there was one person in the room that I thought to myself as I watched round after round until the wee hours of Saturday morning, I wish I could know what they're thinking in this moment. It wasn't the Republicans who were trying to get organized and unified. It wasn't the Democrats who made no bones in their attempts to mock the Republicans. It wasn't even the eventual Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, as he sat and had listened for the whole week. The person that I was curious about was the clerk of the court who called the roll. Day after day, she called name after name. She listened and recorded and observed and said nothing out of turn. She saw how the sausage was made. She heard the grandstanding. She observed the lies. And she witnessed the victory. I wish I could know what was going on in her mind throughout the course of that week. In 1775, John Adams and Benjamin Franklin met for the first time in the Second Continental Congress. Their relationship would eventually grow, but it would not be a warm one. But as two geniuses met for the very first time, I wish that I could have known what was going on in their mind. On June 22nd, 1942, General Dwight Eisenhower met Winston Churchill in the White House. Churchill, the elder, Eisenhower, the junior. The two men over the course of the next couple of years would have partnered in defeating the Nazis and would have a significant role in shaping the Western world for the coming decades. And as the younger Eisenhower sized up the older Churchill, I wish I could know what was in his mind. The same could really be true of any person of interest or importance. Sports figures, inventors, geniuses, those who witnessed unique moments in history, even personal friends. I wish I knew what he was thinking in that moment. I'd imagine that some of us have probably asked that question about Jesus. We read the accounts of his life and we see the things that he did and the people that he engaged. What was he thinking in this moment or that? I wish I knew exactly what Jesus was thinking when he left heaven 
and was born on earth. And so when we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, that Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Some of your translations might say, have the mind of Christ among yourselves. We sit up and we listen. If you've ever wondered what Jesus was thinking when he left heaven and came to earth, what his mind was in that moment, Paul not only tells us what it was, but he tells us that we can and should have the same mind or the same mindset as we go through our lives as well. In a very real way, you can have an element of the mind of Christ. Listen to what he says about it in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 3. It says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the book of Philippians, Paul has been encouraging people who are trying to figure out how to live in this world in such a way that navigates their joy, their purpose, and their unity And he tells them in chapter 1, verse 27, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. And here, he describes in greater detail how to do that. It happens when Christians adopt the mind of Christ with regard to their relationships. And you might say that the mind of Christ is most pointedly displayed in this regard in his humility. And it's in this humility that gives you a glimpse into his mind, and it becomes the point, really, of the application of this text this morning. (coughs) We see Jesus' humility in a variety of ways. The first thing that we see about it is that Jesus had humility in heaven. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here, in this verse and the following verses, you're going to see some really carefully worded descriptions of Jesus, his relationship with God, and with humanity. Very, so very carefully, actually, that it has served the church well to form 
our understanding, our theology of who Jesus is. So to say that Jesus was in the form of God is to describe the fact that he had the same form or figure as the Father. People are often described by their figure. Hey, that guy that looks like that, or hey, that woman with the blonde hair, or on and on and on. Calvin describes the form this way. He describes it to mean This is referring to his majesty. For as a man is known by the appearance of his form, so majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. Jesus was majestic. Colossians 1.19 says, In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus radiates the glory of God in who he is. It's an essential part of his eternal nature. And yet his attitude was one in which he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means he didn't leverage his glory for the sake of his own advantage. In perfect unity and form with God the Father, he did not seek his own comfort. He did not seek his own gain. He did not seek his own status. Jesus was humble in heaven. Jesus was not only humble in heaven, but he proved this humility in his incarnation here on earth. And it wasn't just humility. It was actually a level of self-humiliation. As he was willing to take on something much lower and willing to endure shame as a result. Verses seven and eight, look at it with me. It says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We call this the condescension of Christ. When we use the word condescend, we usually use it in a negative context. We say something like, he was so condescending in his tone to me, as if he knows so much more than I do, or as if his status is so much greater than mine. We use it in a negative way. But when we speak of the condescension of Christ, we speak of it positively because he actually is of much higher status. He is the radiance of the glory of God. There is no one higher than him. And yet he emptied himself and became a man. He condescended. He came down. He left the glories of heaven and came to the darkness of earth. He left the throne room in which praise was always on his ears. And he came among the scoffers. 
And in this way, his coming down is a form of self-humiliation. And so what does it mean that he emptied himself, as it says in verse 7? We need to be really careful here because there are a lot of common misunderstandings about what this means. I imagine that some of us here today might think that when we say Jesus emptied himself, we might think this means that he emptied himself of some of his divine attributes or divine power to become a human. As if Jesus became a little bit less God so that he could live on earth as a human. There's a name to that theory that's called the kenosis theory. It was started by some German liberal theologians in the early 1900s. It comes from the word kenoo, just simply means empty. And so the kenosis theory states that Jesus gave up some of his divine attributes to become a human. And in doing so, it leads those liberal scholars to conclude that Jesus was not actually fully God. But we know that isn't the case when you look at the rest of Scripture, don't we? We know that it isn't true that Jesus is 50% God and 50% human. And somehow that makes the whole. Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. He did not give up or empty himself of any divine power or attributes. And you see that throughout the Bible, don't you? You see throughout the scripture as Jesus is, exercises his divine authority over the weather, in multiplying food, in casting out demons, in forgiving sins, in perceiving people's thoughts and knowing what their hearts were, even though they didn't vocalize it. Jesus, we see, actually knew people's personal history, even upon meeting them for the first time. He displays that with the woman at the well. And Jesus exercised his divine power and authority over the devil. He gave up none of his divine attributes. He actually displayed them. And so then what does it mean to say that he emptied himself? Well, I think the key is found in the following two actions that Paul mentions here. The negative aspect of emptying himself is then described by two positive aspects that come after it. Namely, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So when you consider those two defining statements we see that this expression of Jesus emptying himself is most likely referring to a combination of his posture, but maybe even more so, that Jesus gave up his rights. He had all the rights of God. He had all the benefits of heaven. He had the right to receive all glory and honor and praise, and he gave those up to become a servant. He did not exchange being God for being a servant. He actually showed what it meant for God to be a servant. And he says as much in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' example 
is one of humility that led him to serve humanity. His humility led him to serve humanity. He was humble in heaven, and he was humble as he condescended to earth. And in verse 8, we see that his humility even extended to his death. In the first century, there was no more degrading action than crucifixion. Those in high society in Rome wouldn't talk about the crosses of the condemned. They were in some ways a form of obscenity to them. It would be completely unheard of for someone to wear a cross as a form of jewelry or to adopt it as a symbol of identity. The curse of the cross evoked images and smells and emotions of stench, nakedness, shame, torture, and death. And verse 8 says that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself by being born a human. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the picture of true humility. And from there, the focus shifts. Not to the past humility of Jesus, not to the present humility of Jesus, but in verses 9 through 11, we see a beautiful expression of Jesus' past, present, and future glory. Look at it with me. In verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's a rare thing for the humble to be exalted. And it's an unheard of thing for the cursed to be elevated. And yet precisely because of his self-humiliation, Jesus received divine exaltation. Let me say it again. Because of his self-humiliation, Jesus received divine exaltation. Or let's just say it more simply. Because he went low, he was lifted up. <laughs> Acts 2.33 says he ascended to the right hand of the Father, to the right hand. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he rules from that position on high. And God, as a result of this, gives Jesus the name that is above every other name. What is that name? Well, we know that the name Jesus means God saves or God is our salvation. But he gives him another name. He says that he has the name Lord. The name Lord in the Greek Old Testament was the translation of the name assigned to God himself, the personal name of God, Yahweh. 
Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. The name of the Son is now the same personal, powerful name of the saving God. And this is the name above all other names. And Paul writes that this name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he has that name. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we got to stop here for a second and pause and try to imagine what the nature of that might look like. It's a really dangerous thing for a preacher to ask you to close your eyes in sermon because you might not open them, but I'm going to ask you and don't worry about what the person next to you thinks about you as you close your eyes because they're going to have theirs closed too. Try to imagine it with me. Try to picture it in your mind. The end of all things. And Jesus is radiant and glorious. Try to picture all those that he has saved are bowing in worship and proclaiming that he is the Lord. The apostle Peter will do it. The disciples, all of them are there. Augustine will do it. Martin Luther will do it. John Wesley will do it. Charles Spurgeon will do it. Billy Graham will do it. And you, if you are among those who have faith in him will join in bending the knee. And all of those who were opposed to him, in their shame in this moment, now acknowledge his glory as they await their own judgment. King Herod and Pontius Pilate will bend the knee. Nero will bend the knee. Joseph Stalin's tongue will confess. The kings of the earth who have mocked him far and wide and the peoples of the earth broad and high. Those who are wealthy and who had trusted in their riches will see now that this person of infinite value and worth makes their earthly riches look as if it is nothing. And even your colleague or neighbor or family member who has ridiculed you 
for following him. In that moment, will confess that he is really the Lord. All opposed to him will acknowledge his glory. And not just those opposed to him, but those who simply tried to ignore him, to live their lives on their own terms, in their own way. They see his radiance now and they're struck with conflicting emotions of awe and fear and regret at all of the chances that they had that are now gone. But for all of the redeemed who are present, overwhelming gratitude is there as they scream and shout and sing glory to the lamb who was slain. Everyone Everyone, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what do you do? You can open your eyes, please do. What do you do? Well, there are, are two applications, one primary to this text and one broadly to the whole Bible. This is the second of those. When, when you come to recognize that at the end of all things, that all people will acknowledge the same truth and that there is a defining reality that dictates all of humankind, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, then regardless of what people believed, or how they live their life on earth, that that thing will be made present and known to all, and all of God's eternal love will be expressed to its completeness, and God's eternal justice will be administered and satisfied, and those who believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins on that day will enjoy that recognition and their internal inheritance, and those who did not will be eternally punished for those sins. For the thoughtful person, this will cause great pause. Will my recognition of him on that day be a joyous one? Which the object of my faith is proven true? Or Will it be a fearful one because I've ignored or avoided or hardened myself against him? Or maybe I've only taken part of his word. Or maybe I looked on him all too casually with regards to the implications of this Jesus for my life. Which one will you be on that day? You can know for sure today how you will respond on that day. <laughs> That's the amazing invitation of the gospel that we give all the time, that you can be secure in a relationship with God by faith in this Savior who wants to forgive you and promises to do so when you put your faith in him. You don't need to wonder what will happen on that day for you if you commit to him today. Because for Jesus, humility and suffering on earth lead to his ultimate glory. And that leads to the, really the main idea of this passage. 
which is following Jesus in humility and even suffering, results in following Jesus to glory. Following Jesus in humility and even in suffering results in following Jesus to glory. And that brings us back to the beginning. As a Christian, how am I supposed to live? Well, verse 17 of chapter 1, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, how do I do that? Chapter 2, verse 5, have the mind of Christ. Well, what is that mind and how does that play out in my life? Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How do I live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Humble yourself. You, you humble yourself. You condescend. You go lower than your station. You serve and look out for the interests of others. Following Jesus in humility and even suffering results in following Jesus to glory. Let's get a little closer. What does this call for humility mean for your self-perception? Because after all, we live in a time, don't we, where self-confidence and boldness and assertiveness are some personality traits that are lauded for the really successful people in our society. So what does this mean with regards to that? Well, first we need to clarify that being humble is not just viewing yourself as something lesser than you are. It's also viewing yourself accurately in light of who God is. <laughs> and yet in our time, the temptation to view ourselves greater than we are is always before us. The dean of the Harvard Business School wrote an article a number of years ago called, You're Not As Virtuous As You Think. <laughs> in which he describes what he calls moral overconfidence, which is the name for thinking that we are higher than we are and more virtuous than we are. He writes that in the lab and in the classroom and beyond, we tend to be less virtuous than we think that we are. And a little moral humility could benefit us all. Moral overconfidence is on display in politics, in business, in sports, really in all aspects of life. There are political candidates who say that they will be the ones who will not use the attack ads until the last week before the election. Their moral overconfidence is in line with what studies find to be generally our inflated view of ourselves. We rate ourselves as above average drivers, above average investors, above average employees, even though the math dictates that that can't be true for all of us. <laughs> In the same way, we also tend to believe that we are less likely to, than the typical person to exhibit negative qualities or have negative life events happen to us. Those are the things that happen to other people. Other people are the people who go through divorce or become depressed or have a heart attack or get cancer. Those things don't happen to us. Humility has something to do with our self-perception. What does it mean for your time? 
when the accounting of time, of your time, is all done, I wonder if it will show that you spent almost all of it on yourself or for yourself, or if you spent some on others as well. Following Jesus in humility and even in suffering results in following him to glory. What does it mean for your relationships? Sometimes it means spending less time with the people you most desire so that you can spend more time with the people who have the greatest need. Other times it means that you might endure difficulty or insult and you're capable of enduring it because you see yourself accurately as you are and you're humble about that. Andrew Murray once wrote that humility is perfect quietness of the heart. I like that description. It is for me to have no trouble never to be fretted or vexed or irritated or sore or disappointed. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to the Father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around is trouble. It is the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ's redemptive work on Calvary's cross manifested in those who are his own, who are definitely subject to the Holy Spirit. English reformer John Knox once approached the court of Mary, the Queen of Scots. And as he was warned that it might be better for him to postpone his visit as she was in one of her angriest moods, and he would almost certainly be humbled. He continued forward, replying, why should I be afraid of a queen when I have just spent four hours with God? What does this mean for your preferences? This is perhaps where it gets the hardest for many of us. Because it's much easier to humble myself for people who think like me, who act like me. It's easier to humble myself to people who are like me and people who I like. But it's much more difficult to humble yourself for people who don't think like you or for people that you might not like. But friends, you have the mind of Christ And following him in this humility and even suffering leads to following him in glory. Some of you have heard of the missionary Sadhu Sundar Singh. He was born in the Punjab in India in 1889. He grew up in the Sikh religion, questioning Christianity and Hinduism. But in his young adult years, he was converted and he put his faith in Christ. And after becoming a Christian, he strongly believed in spreading the hope and the peace that he found in the gospel to the people of India, but he wanted to do it in an Indian way. So like Jesus, he had no possessions. He called the road his home. And stories were told of the amazing miracles that God did through Sundar. And through 
And through that time, there were many attempts at his life, attempts to poison him, attempts to imprison him, attempts to stone him. And yet for all of those attempts, the work and miracles of God shined all the brighter. He stood out from other Christians because he always wore a saffron turban and a saffron robe. He was known as the apostle with bleeding feet because he walked far and long. And you might imagine as some people in the West heard about him, they wanted to meet him. And so he received some level of notoriety. And another missionary named Cory Ten Boom met him once in Europe and she shared of her experience. She said, when I saw Sadhu Sundar Singh in Europe, he had completed a tour around the world. And people asked him, doesn't it harm you? You're getting so much honor? And Sadhu's answer was, No. The donkey went into Jerusalem and they put garments on the ground before him. He was not proud. He knew it was not done to honor him, but for Jesus who was sitting on his back. When people honor me, I know it's not me, (laughs) but it's the Lord who does the work. Following Jesus in humility And even suffering results in following him to glory. And so the question for you is, who is it that you need to consider more significant than yourself in the week ahead? Father, we need your help in this. Thank you for the example of your son who personifies humility Continue to allow us to follow him in this humility. Give us a tenderness and a willingness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.